We revolutionized the way people move large sharks. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, hi, hello. Welcome back to the podcast that answers the question, just how big are a bull shark's horns? The Rasafari Podcast. Y'all, I am excited to bring you this episode, but let's, let's do some house, house cleaning first. Nope, housekeeping, that's the word. I should stop recording these so darn late at night. Anyway, make sure you're following along at Rasafari on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Rossafari Pod on the not really heavily used TikTok. And uh, don't forget, y'all, we've got really cool merch available at Rossafari.com. Uh, hoodies, t-shirts, all kinds of stuff. There, There's one with like one of my logos on it that has all the cool drawings of different animals. And then there's the What's Your Poop Story, poop story. line of hoodies and shirts and such. Um it's it's cool stuff, y'all. I got to tell you, every time I wear my poop story, poop story, hoodie out, people ask me about it. So check out rossafari.com and go grab yourself some poop story, poop story merch. Outside of that, I just have some cool stuff to say in that I am currently gigging in the Phoenix, Arizona area. Um, So, you know, if you are a Phoenician, that's not what that word means. But if you are in the Phoenix area, let me know. I'd, I'd love to meet up or chat or maybe even have you come see the show, see the the other thing that I do, the whole playing the drums thing. Um, but also, I'm excited to tell you that I have yet again reached out to a bunch of cool facilities and started to get some responses. As you know, until the interviews are recorded, you never know what's going to happen. But uh, things are looking pretty darn good for Phoenix, just like they did for California and the road trip out here, and Florida, and all the other things. Y'all, this podcast, it's its going places. Like, literally, we, we go all over the country and, and do this. And uh, that includes going to exactly where you would expect to find one of the coolest, most innovative aquariums in the country, Oklahoma. Okay, okay. If you know your geography then you know that that was a, a weird comment to make because Oklahoma is landlocked and uh, not exactly known for its sea life due to its <clears throat> lack of sea. However, the Oklahoma Aquarium does an amazing job of bringing the ocean to a landlocked state. And also, oh man, there's just, okay, so I don't love putting a ton of spoilers into the intro here, but there is so much good stuff in this episode, okay? Um, the Oklahoma Aquarium has a species of shark that you can only find in captivity in the Western Hemisphere at the Oklahoma Aquarium. And the story of how those sharks got there may even be cooler than the sharks themselves. But also, I have to tell y'all, um, I've had a lot of fans reach out and tell me that your favorite thing is when I have a personal connection with a place or an animal or, or something like that. Obviously, 
I, I love every facility that I have featured on here and, and so many of the people are, have been so incredible. It's just awesome. But, um, every once in a while I'll, I'll share a story that connects a little bit deeper with who I am and my experiences and why I do what I do. And this episode has one of those stories and I think you're really going to love it. So my guest from the Oklahoma Aquarium is Dr. Ann Money, who is the Director of Development and Research at the Oklahoma Aquarium. But she has been there since the start with this facility in a bunch of different roles. She knows the animals. She knows the history. She knows all about oh, just everything. I I was incredibly impressed by, by Dr. Money. Um, and, uh, you know, this interview was awesome. And then after the interview, we ended up hanging out for a while, and uh, I didn't get audio from that. That really wasn't the vibe, but I, I'm going to share with you after the interview a, a couple of stories from, from hanging out with Dr. Money at the Oklahoma Aquarium that I think you're going to really love. So uh, let's get to it. First, I have to play my ad, so here is that. Today's episode is brought to you by Daydreamer Studios. Do you have stories and expertise to share with the world? Have you ever thought about starting your own podcasts? There's no better time to start than now with the help of a trusted production partner. Daydreamer Studios is a full-service production company that takes all the stress off your plate. You can focus on creating engaging content while they focus on recording, editing, audio engineering, hosting, and publishing on 22 platforms. Log into the advanced remote system with one click and the Daydreamer team will be on the other end ready for you to record everything you have to say. Owned and operated by Daydreamer Network, Daydreamer Studios continues on the company's mission to empower storytellers of all kinds by making podcasting accessible to all. For more information and current promotions, visit daydreamernetwork.com studios. And now it is time. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Ann Money of the Oklahoma Aquarium. All right. So why don't we start off by you telling me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. Well, hello there. I am Ann Money, and we are at the Oklahoma Aquarium, and I am the Director of Development and Research. Okay. And um, what's your real name? Because Ann Money is clearly like a stage name. Come on, that's too good. My guest today is Ann Money. <laughs> well, I actually married Money. So, yeah. <laughs> she married into money, folks. Yep, yep. And I even have a moneymaker. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. We are off to a great, great start for a science podcast. Now, um, awesome. But and so, um, so we're here at the Oklahoma Aquarium. And um, a little birdie told me that you have been here since basically the start of this. Yeah. Um, cool. So I, I want to talk about that. But first, I want to talk about you and what your journey has been like to get here. So tell me about like when you were younger, did you know you wanted to do animal things? And what was your journey like? It was really hard and really long. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, so I always knew I wanted to be a biologist. I mean, once I got past that, I want to be a blues singer and an astronaut and all that, you know, I settled on biology, but I grew up in the DC area. Okay. So on the Chesapeake Bay and spent my life on the water, my, my early days on the water. And from there I went to undergrad right outside of DC 
And then I went to Seattle because why not? It was the mid nineties and that was a great place to be. <laughs> <a> really good, <laughs> yeah. And uh, while in Seattle, I, I would contract up in Alaska and I worked as a biologist on the fishing boats and it is as crazy as the TV show. What is it? Deadliest catch <laughs> yes, makes it yes. look. Yeah. It's insane. It's absolutely insane. Um, so I did that and then I moved down to Galveston and I worked for, um, the National Marine Fisheries Service rearing sea turtles. So oh. I got to work with tiny little baby sea turtles. It was amazing. Um, and then got the offer to come here and open an aquarium in the middle of the country. And I had never lived inland. I, I've all, I had always been on a coast and uh, it was going to be five years. And then you know, get this career started in, in the aquarium industry and move on. Well, when I first decided I wanted to be a biologist, I actually did not want to be a marine biologist. Interesting. Yeah, I think almost everybody every, goes through a marine biology phase. Everybody's like, like I want to be a marine biologist. I did not want to be a marine biologist. I wanted to be an environmental biologist. And at the time that I was in undergrad, that wasn't really an option. So I, I kind of made my own and I got an environmental management certificate and then every job I got was in marine science <laughs> from that point on. And then I got my brain around the fact that 71% of the planet is water. So really, the biggest impact I could make environmentally was in the marine biology field. Interesting. And once I wrapped my, my brain, and, and it's not that I didn't want to be on the water all the time. It's, it's just, it was the way that I looked at, at the fields. And so here I am. So back to the story, in Oklahoma was going to be five years. And then 20 years later, here I still am. And during the time that I have been here, I've had three children, twin girls that and a son. And my twin girls were born in March of 2003. And the aquarium opened in May of 2003. <laughs> so I kind of had triplets. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really busy time. Um, so yeah, so I had three kids and then I worked primarily in education and then was the director of education and absolutely loved that, love working with the kids and really feel that um, it's extremely important for children to go to zoos and aquariums and nature centers. It's, it's how they learn science. And along those lines, I, uh, I was introduced to marine biofluorescence. So we had a photographer that was originally from Oklahoma. She had been in New York for many years and then was down in Bonaire and captured all of these images underwater of animals biofluorescing. So I knew a lot about bioluminescence and I knew almost nothing about biofluorescence and come to find out very few people knew anything about biofluorescence because we can't see it, right, typically. Right. Sometimes if you're looking at a coral and it looks really bright, that's fluorescence. That's what you're seeing or the black light on the scorpion, that kind of thing. But really, we can't typically see it without special lights and filters. So here she's unpacking these images, actually in this room that we're sitting in right now and leaning them against the walls. And I'm walking through and I'm just blown away. I, I just, I'd never seen anything like it. And then one of the pictures was a scorpion fish. It was an ambon scorpion fish and it was fluorescing red. 
And it completely blew my mind because fish can't see red typically. Uh, so why was this fish fluorescing red? Is it camouflage? What, what on earth is this? Right. So I dove in, pun intended. And <laughs> you fit in well on this podcast. <laughs> I, tr- I tried to learn absolutely everything I could about biofluorescence and specifically underwater. And so fluorescence in living things. And there was almost nothing out there. I mean, it was just kind of this desert of lack of information. And so I ended up going all over the place and diving to look at fluorescence and really just became obsessed with it. And uh, I was helping to teach a course here at the aquarium with two retired uh, professors from Oklahoma State University. And I was just casually chatting with them one day and I said, I wonder if I could turn this into a degree. And I, I really hadn't thought about getting a graduate degree. I hadn't been an undergrad for that point, 22 years, I think. Um, and they said, absolutely. And they said, write something up. So I wrote up this crazy proposal from an aquarium in Oklahoma about studying fluorescence in coral. <laughs> and I chose coral specifically because coral reef habitats are in trouble. Yes. And they're so fluorescent. Yes. I was like, "What a what a that that'll be perfect." So, um, so I applied for grad school, and they took me. <laughs> <laughs> and literally, I sat in an office with my the woman who became my advisor. We talked for two hours, and I I was like, "I really don't know anything about this, but I want to learn everything." And she said, "She said, all right, I'm in." And I said, well, what does that mean? I have no idea what that means. She goes, I'll take you on as a grad student. And I went, really? <laughs> okay. And the first question out of my mouth was, do I have to retake the GRE? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, yeah. And I, and I went, mm. <laughs> the dream almost died right there. <laughs> but I took the GREs and they were yeah, I don't like those kind of standardized tests. It almost it, it derailed me a little bit, but you know, which is silly. But uh, kept with it and started the the program pretty quickly. Um, and I really just didn't think about it. I because if I had thought about it, I there's no way I would have done it because I continued to work full time here and raising three kids and getting a PhD at a school that's an hour and twenty minutes away. So the first couple of semesters were pretty rough because it was a lot of driving back and forth. But by the end, I had learned so much, and there's, there's so much more to learn. But uh, what I ended up becoming really fascinated with was actually the algae, the symbiotic algae inside of the coral and the functionality of the fluorescence in potentially attracting that algae because we now know there's many, many different species of the algae, and some are more heat tolerant, which is, of course, um, v- vitally important to coral right now, right, because right. it's the, the ocean temperatures increasing that's causing bleaching events. And then the other part of my uh, doctoral studies had to do with education, because here I was, you know, director of education here, and I really wanted to be able to quantify the impact of a field trip here on a student's interest in STEM. Okay. And so I did pre and post surveys, and um, I had a blast with it. It was really interesting to take a group of kids and say something like, "Do you? Who here is a researcher?" 
and maybe one child would raise their hand. And then you ask, uh, well, who here has ever asked a question and found the answer? And of course, everybody raises their hand. And I say, well, every one of you is a researcher. And what, what I found through that research was there was a statistically significant increase in how fun the kids thought science was. Now, that's, that's a given. We have bull sharks and sea turtles. <laughs> that's an easy one. But also, uh, their, their interest in potentially pursuing a STEM field. So they left here not only knowing what that meant, what STEM was, what a STEM field was, but that might be something they wanted to do. And they walked in not, having an, and not knowing anything about it or even thinking of themselves in those terms. Uh, so that ended up being just a really beautiful thing that came out of it. So it, it was kind of a, a two-part thing there. And so now I use that every day. And I've actually uh, switched to development uh, my role here at the aquarium because I felt like after years and years of teaching and working directly with the kids and the education team that I could do more good bringing in money to bring in every child in this region so every kiddo gets a chance to come here for free. That's really awesome. And we will we will touch on development. Sure. But um, before we move on from the bioluminescence, mm-hmm. um, you said bioluminescence, biofluorescence. Right. And there is a difference. And I'm guessing a lot of my audience doesn't know unless right. they listened to my coral episode from oh. the coral bank, uh, the coral gene bank at Moat Marine Laboratory. Very cool. But in case, if you heard that, you already know. But if you haven't, um, what is the difference between luminescence and fluorescence? Oh, Okay. So bioluminescence is actually, it's a chemical reaction. It's a protein and and an enzyme that combine. And then there's the the energy that's released from it is in the form of light. Fluorescence is more of a mechanical uh, function. So there's, there's a protein and it absorbs light at one wavelength. It scatters it. Um, and so a little bit of the energy is used up and then it forces back out light. And that light uh, is in the, the the fluorescence range, so that's why we typically can't see it because it's closer to within the closer to the UV range, and so the 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 shorter the wavelength that goes in, the more brilliant the fluorescence that comes out. Cool, very good. All right, so you um you touched on your role as director of development a little bit, but um what what does that mean uh, specifically for here and for you? So. Really what that means within our institution is getting out into the community, letting people know what we are, who we are, what we do. Uh, Because, you know, people have an idea of what an aquarium is, but they think, and it is this, but a lot of beautiful animals and cool animals and all of this diversity and and that's amazing. But they may not know the behind the scenes what's happening. So... What I do is try to make sure everybody knows what's happening and how important it is. And for instance, we do we do research here. So we're still the, the coral research that I touched on. And we do bull shark research because we are the only aquarium, the only place in the Western Hemisphere that has bull sharks in captivity. Wow. And they are badass sharks (laughs) and they're just incredible and so we've actually worked with NOAA to test their uh their mooring uh their mooring lines for their weather buoys so sharks will come by and bite them and then they'll drift off so these are things that save people's lives these are you know they they 
let you know when typhoons are coming in or tidal waves, things like that. So if they're just floating away, they're not doing any good. Right. So they come here and they, they test these different types of mooring lines with our bull sharks because bull sharks have the strongest bite per pound of any species. And so they find one that the, the shark can't bite through and they're like, okay, that's the one we're going <laughs> to use. So I always like to tell people our bull sharks actually help save lives. I like it. Yeah, like it's it. it's a better spin on sharks than the normal narrative. Yeah, they need they need some they need some positive press. Right. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, very cool. And uh, yeah, I, that's something that I you know I'm in an interesting position with this podcast in that I need access and I need friends at all of these places and I need y'all to like me <laughs> so that the next time that I'm coming through the Tulsa area I can say hey I'd like to do another interview and Lolly won't say get out. Um, <laughs> But, Get out of my know, aquarium. <laughs> but at the same time, I also feel like it's part of my job to push and to encourage and to to make an already great industry better. Yeah. Because I'm bringing the knowledge of talking to people from all around the country and world, actually, at facilities. Right. And also having visited over 160 facilities. Um, wow. You know, I, I have a unique perspective. Right. That not a lot of people in this world have. Right. Um, and one thing that I push for a lot when I don't see it is getting that word out there. I mm-hmm. think so many places will show you 8,000 pictures of their cute baby elephant mm-hmm. and never once say, did you know that we're doing research and that we are funding work out in Africa to conserve said right. elephant you right. know, or whatever, the, the bull shark thing that you just said? It's so easy to say, we have cool sharks that you can see. Right. But are we going to say, hey, this is also how we save lives, you know? And I feel like so many places don't do that or don't do that enough. And I think that gives the anti-captivity people a lot of ammo. Sure, sure. Because it's easy to say, well, you know, look, all they say is that they have a a cute sea turtle. And yeah, we do. We do, yeah, yeah. did you know they're endangered? And we're working to, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Um, So it's really cool to hear that that's a big, big part of what you do. I'm really happy to hear that. Thank you. And we, we do it. It sounds like you do the exact same thing, but on a much grander scale. <laughs> so you're on a global scale doing it, which thank you. I it's mean, wonderful. my dream is that this podcast would get big enough that every facility, because I think every facility has amazing people. Mm-hmm. Every, almost everyone that works with animals, you can never say right. all, but almost everyone right, right. is amazing. Because there, there, there is a certain level of compassion that you need to have right. and caring that you need to have to be in an animal field. Absolutely. Um, and I think every story deserves to be told. Yeah. And I think every facility should have their own podcast and put me out of business, but this <laughs> takes time and effort and knowledge that a lot of facilities don't have to spare. Sure. And so I want to be that guy for literally every facility. Yay, I want I places that. to call me and be like, we're opening a new exhibit. Come, you know, or right, whatever. Right. Or can we do a Zoom interview about it? Whatever. I want, you know, because yeah, all of these stories deserve to be shared. Yeah. And I think it's so important. That's fantastic. Thank I really... You. Really love that. Um, Talking about the education component, one of the things that was really fascinating to me is is that uh, children in the United States are some of the most scientifically literate in the world until they get to about third or fourth grade. And then interest drops off, which is where zoos, aquariums, informal science learning centers come into play. But they really think they, you know, the the big they, really think it's because of kids going to facilities like this. Um, 
But then there's a flip side to that because not everybody can afford to go to a zoo or an aquarium. So it creates this socioeconomic gap in learning. And so I think uh, along with, um, you know, what, what we do for the animals and for the planet, um, we need to do within our communities for our kids to make sure that everybody gets that same experience. And that experience may be, hey, I want to go see a cute sea turtle. Mm -hmm. Perfect. But there's not a child in the world that will walk away from touching a shark and not remember touching that shark. So it's just, it's, it's, I love what you're doing because it highlights that. That's fantastic. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, and with all of that awesome and good deep stuff being said, um, let's talk about a cute sea turtle because right. I have a story. Okay. Okay. So um, a couple of years ago, uh, I was playing the hard rock in Tulsa and I rented a car. And I drove my booty on down here mm -hmm. uh, to Jenks, which is where this is. Yeah, yeah. And um, I had just gotten a new iPhone. Okay. And uh, the the sea turtle exhibit here is stupidly good. <laughs> Thank um, you. The it's so beautiful, it's so cool. And and one of the things that I did was I, I as I always do, I take pictures. You know, I yeah. took a picture of that sea turtle. And that picture, despite the fact that. Things have improved with cameras and all that stuff. That picture oh is my still gosh. my phone background because it is oh. the most beautiful, perfect. I mean, look at my baby, right? And I have, I have <laughs> I taken love him. thousands of sea turtle oh pics. Oh my since gosh! Then, and I've never captured anything like that. And actually, I have a whole series that are like that. Wow, I really like to see them. <laughs> I, I will, yes, definitely happy to share. Um, but. I know nothing about this sea turtle. And I, because this was mm. before I started the pod, this was before I got brave to start talking to people at these facilities. Yeah, yeah. And I want to know everything about a turtle that I have seen literally every day in my life oh, since. I love that. Well, first of all, his name is Seymour. Seymour. <laughs> that was, we did a naming contest. But I love it. Yes, he's so cute. So he is a loggerhead sea turtle. And loggerheads, as so there's seven species of turtle. They're all, as you I'm sure know, endangered in some part of their range. Right, right. And um, so that's a lot of what we do is talk about that when it comes to that gallery. But that specific sea turtle, he has a brother, and his brother's name is Spot. And we will, and Seymour used to be called Not Spot. So. <laughs> So there was spot and not spot, oh and I'll God. explain why this here in a little bit. This is my favorite thing ever already, <laughs> just so you know. So, okay, I'm trying to think of how much I'm going to tell. Um, okay, so they were born, they're brothers, and they were born in 1994 in November in Virginia Beach. Well, November in Virginia Beach, at least used to be, really cold, right. really, really cold. So had they hustled their little sea turtle ways to the water, they would have gotten cold stunned. They wouldn't have survived. So the Virginia Marine Science Center captured up these two boys, took them to the aquarium, and head-started them. And so head-starting, of course, is when um, you grow them to a certain size, and then you can release them, and not everything in the world will try to eat them. So they got these boys to that size, and they were so accustomed to people and so interactive with people. U.S. Fish and Wildlife said, uh, yeah, you can't release oh, them. Uh. <laughs> They're going to get hit by a boat or, you know, they just, they loved people. So they had these boys in an exhibit with some other, it was a mixed species exhibit. 
there was a green, there was a camps, I believe. Um, I'm trying to think that may, that may have been it anyway. So they call us because we were fairly, we had, oh gosh, we had, this would have been 19 years ago. It was pre-twins. Everything is pre-twins. <laughs> so anyway, um, no, it was, it was several years ago though. And, and they called us and said, hey, we've got these two loggerhead sea turtles and we need to find a home for them. They're outgrowing the exhibit. And we went, Yeah. Because most aquariums or zoos that you go to, if you see a sea turtle, it's often got a bite in it or missing a flipper. Because the only reason you will see sea turtles in captivity in the U.S. or U.S. territory is because they're being rehabilitated for release or they're non-releasable. So most turtles that you see are non-releasable. Our guys are, they're, they're, they're models. <laughs> they're like, they're supermodels. They're beautiful. And we were really lucky to be able to get these beautiful loggerheads because like it, he's been on your, he's your screensaver and has been for years for that reason. It's yep. like people notice them. So spot and not spot. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while for us to raise all the funding for that exhibit. And so they lived, they, their home was back behind the scenes in our, in our large animal holding facility. So really, we would, we would take tours back there, things like that. Well, certain, like every year around springtime, not Spot would get a little feisty with Spot. And not Spot gave Spot the Spot by, by biting him on the back of the neck. Um, so we would separate them and then put them back together, and they're, they're, they were fine. They, they've lived together their entire lives. Um, so when we opened the exhibit, we put them both on exhibit and not spot. Now Seymour said, oh, no, this is mine. This is my territory. So now we have Seymour on exhibit and spot is behind the scenes. And we switch them out occasionally um, just to, to keep it fresh for them in the, in the enrichment. So when they called us, I fly out to Virginia to pick up these turtles because my, if you remember my job previous to this was working with sea turtles right, and right. I have transported hundreds of turtles through that job. So I was kind of an, a natural fit for that, for that particular job. So I fly out there and I, and I go into the aquarium and I'm talking to the curator and we walk up to the tank and it was beautiful. And a diver gets in and immediately goes to the bottom sits on the bottom crisscross and this giant green sea turtle swims over and sits in his lap and everything in me went squeeze. <laughs> <laughs> I'm finally going to get to play with them. Um, because of course it was all very, you know, professional, <laughs> you know, it was all very right. scientific with right. the, with the little guys because they were going, they were wild turtles. So I was so excited. And then I realized there was probably a reason we got these two guys because I love them with every fiber of my being, but they are sassy. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really sassy. So when they were back behind the scenes, we would get in and we still get in, but we, we actually take them off exhibit when we do, but, and we would get in and we would scrub and just interact with the turtles just for enrichment. And you would try to climb out and Seymour would grab your flippers (laughs) No, 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 no! I'm not done playing. So yeah, that they are, they are, they are crazy. They're a handful. They were about 200 pounds when we picked them up, and 
you move turtles dry. So you keep, you moisten them down with a spray bottle and you keep like a moist towel over their head and over their carapace, their shell. And I moved them in the back of a U-Haul. And I had been given dimensions that, um, the preferred dimensions to build these like dividers for them. And I was a tiny bit worried. I thought it might be a little bit too big because if they have too much space, they can, they can, you know, they're flippers, they can hurt themselves. So I get maybe 20 minutes down the road and I pull over and I open the back of the U-Haul and sure enough, they had too much space. So I hoofed it to the closest feed and tax store I could find. So I go inside this feed and tax store and walk up to the counter and I have no idea what these things are called, like a trough or I I had no idea. So I'm trying to motion with my hands. I need something about this big and you know, circular and it doesn't have to be deep. And he looks at me, he goes, well, what do you need it for? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no. And I said, well, I've got two sea turtles in the back of that truck that I need to, I need to put them in a better container. And he goes, no, you don't. <laughs> and I said, you want to see? <laughs> and so we go outside and I lift up the, the back of the U-Haul and he goes, well, I'll be damned. You've got, <laughs> you've got two sea turtles back here. And I said, yeah. And I said, now, how do, how do you feel about picking a sea turtle up? And he goes, will it bite me? And I said, oh, yeah. But I'm going to let you get the rear end and I'll get the front. Because it was me and a 90-pound woman. And we had to lift them into these oh, no. containers. So these guys are big guys. And I'm like, so I'm going to recruit you for this. But I, I laugh when I think about that because I wonder if to this day they still go, remember that crazy lady that pulled up with the sea turtles in the back of the truck. But yeah, that's how we got them. And now they're 325 pounds. They're, they're big boys and they're beautiful and perfect. That's really awesome. Yeah, when, uh, when I got here, um, you know, Lolly took me on a quick tour just to like reacclimate myself with everything. Sure. But we didn't actually go in to see... The seat, he's just, you know, turtle over there, we, we keep going. And I was literally like, I'm always torn between the professional who's like, this is good, get your information, set up, record, and the child in me, especially because I haven't seen this turtle in years. And like I said, I, I see it every day yeah. that I literally just wanted to ditch her and run. <laughs> and like, I literally just wanted to be like, bye. And see ya. <laughs> oh my God. Of all the people, she would understand. I, I, yeah, she'd be like, no, I'll come with you. I, I totally get it. But I was like, be professional. Professional, professional. You can see you can see the turtles after the interview. That's but, hilarious. Um, yeah, that, I'm obsessed. I mean, it's just it's such a gorgeous exhibit. Thank too. you. Yeah, I will tell you there are a lot of perks to to my job and doing what I do. But one of my biggest perks is because I'm in an aquarium and I work with kids. I can anthropomorphize the heck out of all of these guys. And so they all have voices. They, and I'm like, I swear I'm a doctor. I promise you I'm a scientist, but look at how cute he is. It's ridiculous, but I love it. I love that part of my job. That's so awesome. And I think, I think you know, I recently had on a... Um the scientist, Dr. Lydia Green from the Duke Lemur Center, okay. who was talking about the same exact thing because I, I said, I know there are some facilities that are more research-based that won't name animals or whatever. Sure. And she literally goes, Psh. She like, <laughs> she's like, no, they have names and they have personalities and it's okay to love them while also 
keeping your scientific exactly. mind separate. And exactly. I, think, yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. Yep. So I'm a big supporter of that concept. Yeah. Well, the, the more excited we are about our animals, the more excited the people who walk through this building are. Yeah. So they, they form an attachment. And, you, you know, as humans, we care about things that we form an attachment to. Yep. And so part of our job is making sure people form an attachment to these amazing animals so they care about them. Yeah, absolutely. So, and anyone who tells you they don't name their animals is lying. They totally do. <laughs> they just may not tell you. <laughs> good to know. Yeah. I can't wait to call some people out on that one. Yeah, okay. What do you really call that animal? <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, that's that was that's really the only reason I came was to find out about about um, this little sea turtle in my world. And now I know there are two. But um, spot, not spot. So good. So good. <laughs> But um, I suppose I should ask about more stuff here because, okay. you know, I am a podcaster. Oh, so um, you had mentioned bull sharks and that y'all are the only ones in the Western Hemisphere with them. So talk to me a little bit more about bull sharks. I'm just picturing sharks with huge horns on their head. I'm right. Probably wrong. <laughs> so Sounds appropriate in Oklahoma. <laughs> we got lots of bulls here. Uh, yeah. So we're the only place in the Western Hemisphere. We also have the largest collection of bull sharks anywhere in the world, right here in the middle of the country. So when we were opening, we knew that we wanted to have bull sharks because they're just, they're a huge statement and they are such a fabulous way to talk about shark conservation because they have a really bad rap. And I can tell people that we get in and scuba dive with them every two weeks and have been doing this for over 20 years. I'm going to knock on some wood. Uh, <laughs> and so far, you've only lost three divers. Uh, just three. Yeah. Well, ooh, there was that other guy, but oh. no. <laughs> but not, I mean, we've never had any sort. Now, they're a wild animal, and you show them respect. Of course. And so we are extremely respectful, and we do wear chain mail just in case, because that would look real stupid. Or something. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, they, it's, it's, it's a great teaching tool, right? So we knew we wanted them. And... Obviously, not many facilities have them. They're hard to keep. They are the only shark that can go between fresh and salt water, which makes them harder to care for because right. parasites you can typically treat with a freshwater dip for a saltwater animal and vice versa. Doesn't matter with them because they can go in between both. Uh, so it, they're hard to come by. And SeaWorld in Orlando had a collection of, of fairly old at that time bull sharks and they were needing to redo the exhibit. And so they called us and said, hey, we heard you guys wanted bull sharks. Um, we have th this group of sharks, and they're yours if you can get them. So at that point in time, no one had ever successfully moved a large bull shark like that. And we said, well, I mean, let's give this a go. We can figure this out. And we built these, like a big stainless steel bathtub, basically. And we went out to Orlando and we took one of the sharks and we put her in this the bathtub and we're blowing oxygen because they, they are one of the species that has to swim all the time uh, to pull oxygen out of the water. So we're blowing oxygen over her gills and we, we drive around the parking lot for about an hour. And then we realize she's not doing great. So we take her right back in, we put her back in the water. And we put her back in, and we realized that she was really kind of pink on her ventral side, on her bottom. And we thought, well, I bet that muscle movement is not just to breathe, it's to keep their blood flowing. So we took a different shark, we put it in this bathtub, 
We blew water over its gills, and every 15 minutes, we got in with it and straddled its tail and walked it back and forth. Oh, to, yeah, my gosh. I couldn't make that up. <laughs> so, drove around the parking lot for 24 hours oh, with this shark, and she did great. She was, she was beautiful. She was healthy. We went, all right, let's do this thing. So we put all of those sharks in stainless steel bathtubs in the back of a U-Haul truck and headed to Oklahoma. Oh, my gosh. And literally, because you have to get permits at each state along the way. Right. And so people knew, like the, the uh, state troopers, they knew what was happening. So they would, we would get pulled over <laughs> just because they wanted to see the sharks. Oh, my gosh. True story. Um, so... <laughs> So I want you to picture this group of biologists in the back of a U-Haul, sharks in bathtubs, bull sharks in bathtubs, lights are going on and off in the back, everybody's motion sick because they're in the back of a truck, so people are throwing up, Oh my gosh. and then getting in with the bull sharks, and walking the bull sharks, and then getting out all the way to Oklahoma. I've never seen people look more green in my entire life. Because you can imagine how it probably smelled back there at that oh, yeah. point. It was horrible. But we revolutionized the way people move large sharks. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and now it's kind of an industry standard that we know we have wow. to keep their muscles moving. So, yeah, the, these, these guys from Oklahoma figured that out. Yeah, well, I mean, again, who doesn't think of, of you know, water when you think of Oklahoma? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. We actually do have more coastline than the east and west coast combined. I know, believe it or not, most of it's man-made, man-made lakes. I was going to say, I mean, okay, but that's still not what most people are thinking Right? No, not at all. I just like to throw that in there. That is actually a really interesting (laughs) fact. Um, And it does does bring up an interesting question, though, which is why, why, why are y'all here? And not just in the Tulsa area, Mm -hmm. which like Oklahoma, Tulsa, no ocean, all all that you said. But then on top of that, why Jenks? Okay. So my, my first answer to that is, why not? You know, if you have kids who live on a coast that have access to marine life and the ocean, that you still need an aquarium. Everyone needs an aquarium. Yes. But, you know, you have kids that, that have more opportunity. In the middle of the country, some of these children may never go to the beach. So this may be their one interaction with marine animals or the one way that they can develop a passion about marine life by coming here. So I think uh, aquariums in the middle of the country are actually even more vitally important than aquariums on on coasts. So Jinx, the reason we ended up, and we're, we're right across the bridge, so we're right across the river from Tulsa, and it was the, this little town, and they knew about the... Oklahoma Aquarium Authority, that was the foundation that formed in 1984. Wow. Remember, we opened in 03. Right, right. So the foundation formed in 84. And all those years, just trying to figure out, it's expensive to build an aquarium. So Jinx was very forward thinking. And they were like, well, if we can get that aquarium here, that could probably do a lot for our city. So they took out a bond issue, and the bond issue is what allowed us to to build the aquarium. The the thing about this aquarium is it is when we opened, it was about a $65 million aquarium, and we opened it for $25 million. And, wow. Mm-hmm. 
And we, we were able to do that. And we've been able to work on a very tight budget over the years because we do everything in-house. We design all the exhibitry. We build all the exhibitry. Uh, we do everything except pour the concrete. And even sometimes we set the acrylic panels. But what people don't see is all of the filtration behind the scenes. That is all designed by our team. Oh, wow. That's really, that's really different. It's, that's interesting. We are different than 99.5% of every other aquarium. That's a really random number. I don't know if that's true. Right. No, but I mean, <laughs> definitely. I spend a lot of time at aquariums mm-hmm. and, and yeah, no, that's very different. And the ones that do have the same filtration, it's because we designed it for them. Interesting. So, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, uh, it doesn't use as much ozone, which can be really harmful if it, if there you know if, if there's an accident and a safety switch doesn't go off or whatever the case may be. Uh, but we are able to do it more economically, and then of course because we built it, uh, it was we were able to save a lot of money. And our our COO and director, I call him the Leonardo da Vinci of aquariums. <laughs> He just has this innate understanding of the movement of water and the statue in the front of the, with the bull sharks. Yes. Yeah. That's, he did that. Oh, okay. So, okay. So literally our budget was so tight. It was going to be $50,000 to get a statue out there and we didn't have it. And so Kenny, our COO goes, I bet I could do that. (laughs) The man YouTubed it. He YouTubed it and made a sculpture of three bull sharks that is absolutely beautiful. Oh, it's stunning. Yeah, right? No, it's, it's a wonderful... I was actually... I stopped <laughs> to look at it on the way in. It was quite lovely. Yeah. It's, it cracks me up. But yeah, so that's how we were able to do what we did. And that's how we were able to be in a smaller town like Jinx because we were, we were able to do it on, on such a tight budget. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, I definitely was wondering about that because, like, I, you know, Tulsa Zoo and stuff. And mm-hmm. then I was like, oh, and okay, a half hour out of town is an aquarium. Interesting. Um, but that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, um, do, do, does the town, you know, have you heard anything? Or is this making a huge impact for the town? I mean, is it the symbiotic relationship <laughs> that they would hope for? Uh, yes, okay. is the short answer. So uh, we call ourselves, we're the Oklahoma Aquarium. So we're not the Tulsa Aquarium. We're not the the Jinx Aquarium. We're the Oklahoma Aquarium. We want, it, it's for the state. It's not just, just for Jinx. Um, but basically, we're a major economic driver in the region. Nice. So 40% of our guests are from out of state. And if you kind of extrapolate it out by... You know, Oklahoma tourism says, you know, a person spends this much money if they come from out of state. When you take those numbers, we bring in $38 million in tax revenue every year. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. So it's not just Jinx. It's the entire Tulsa metro area that that has really benefited from the aquarium. I'm very proud of that, if you can't tell. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really, that's awesome, though. That's really wonderful. Thanks. Very cool. Um... Tell me, tell me about another animal here that that's special and that you want to share about. Okay, well, let me let me think. There's so many. I really love our mud skippers just because they're so darn cute. I just can't stand it with their little eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> but I would be remiss if I don't talk about my favorite animal in the world, which you could probably guess what it is. 
You're like, it's not a sea turtle? Yeah, right? No, I'm literally, that, <laughs> you, you literally, I went, oh, wait a minute. I thought, I assumed we were going with the turtles. Um, so I am madly in love with sea turtles, but my favorite animal is a giant Pacific octopus. Okay, damn, I should have guessed because I was going to say, so I just recently met mm-hmm. a giant Pacific octopus. They're amazing. And I've hung out with it twice now mm-hmm. and it is life-changing mm-hmm. weirdest alien ever if they looked the to 30 they would take over the world oh i don't know how they don't like, take over the world they, now it's insane they are amazing and they, i was just at the st louis aquarium yesterday mm-hmm. and the one behavior that i can think of like with an octopus that i haven't seen yet is the whole invertebrate thing where it fits through a space it shouldn't uh-huh. and i totally got to watch it do oh it. yeah that video it's of it wild. and it's mind-blowing yeah yeah and it's then it's wild. just like boom i'm an octopus again right <laughs> No, you're not. What? How did you? Yeah. So tell me about your, your GPO. Sure. So uh, they are the largest of the octopuses, and it is octopuses, not octopi. Uh, so they're the largest, and they can, they're typically, will get to about 60 pounds to 100 pounds, but they've found one, I think 600 pounds is the largest. Oh. So this is an animal that only lives three to five years. They have a very short lifespan, and so they just have a completely different life strategy than we do. We have long lifespan and have very few children. They have a very short lifespan and have a whole bunch of offspring. (laughs) So they kind of are born, they hunt, they eat, they mate, they lay their eggs, they take care of the eggs, and they die. And that's the lifespan of an octopus. But what's crazy about that is the intelligence of that animal. It's phenomenal. They can, they're problem solvers and they're a mollusk. So at some point in their history, they had a shell. And again, the collective, they think that they became so intelligent because they lost the shell. They're just a squishy, gooey mass with no protection whatsoever. So they had to get real smart. And so, right. So, and not only are they really smart, they're very, very strong. Yes. So the rule of thumb is you don't let a GPO get more than two arms on you because if they do, they can pull you in easily. They are so strong and they're so curious. And each one has a different personality, which I find incredibly fascinating. So some will come in and it will just be interactive and it loves people and it's curious. And then we'll have others come in that are like, don't look at me. I don't want to see you put the food in and walk away. <laughs> it's just incredible. But we had, so it wasn't a GPO, but we at, at one point had a Pacific red octopus and her name was Ruby. They all have names. Of course. And um, she actually came in on a kelp hold fast to the invert lab at Oklahoma State University. So I get a phone call from the professor and he's like, hey, this octopus came in in this hold fast. Do you guys want it? And I went, yes, yes, we do. And, um, you know, I probably should have asked the biology crew first, but this was kind of a beg for forgiveness later kind of situation. Fair, fair. So we go and get this little octopus and we bring her back and I am so excited. I can't wait to meet her. And she's just a legend at this point with all of the students at OSU and So she gets here and I give her some time to acclimate. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to go meet her. I'm going to go meet her. And I walk up to the tank and I I stick my finger in the water just a little tiny bit. And she's like, (laughs) I'm going to bite your finger off. And she's spitting water at me. And she absolutely hates me. Like hates me. And I'm like, 
I saved your life. <laughs> I gave you a home. You should love me. But she did not until the day that she passed because those, they're smaller. They only live about a year, right. a year and a half. Um, until that, that little octopus's life ended, she did not like me and I was never able to interact with her and it broke my heart. Oh no, that's so <laughs> sad. That's amazing though. <laughs> it's yeah, they're, they're funny. They are, God, they are something else that you're right. They're aliens. It's like, how is that even a thing? Yeah. No, I, and the, the two arm thing, I was warned, you know, one thing I get to meet a lot of animals. I get mm-hmm. to go behind the scenes when I do this stuff all the time. And I was told, you know, if if there's more than a, a second arm coming towards you, like pull back. But I didn't fully understand the strength yeah. of an octopus. Yeah. And so an arm went on me and I was like, this is very cool. And then the second arm went on me and I was like, okay. And I was very aware, <laughs> listening to what the keeper said, keeping an eye on all of the other ones. Right, right. Know? All other six And I of see them. a third one coming up and I just go to casually like pull my arm back. Like, <laughs> like if a red panda had my arm or something like has happened all the time, you know, and you, right. you go boop and it's fine. And I went to pull my arm back and it didn't move. <laughs> And I, I'm like, oh, um, I, Panic I, sets in. And, and I, and I, and I stay calm, but I was just like, I was just like, um, I can't, I, it has my arm and I can't un, it can't unhave my arm. And she kind of intercepted the, the third one and then, um, literally like started pulling the suckers off and was like, you will have hickeys. Like it's fine. Oh, yeah. and, but I had no clue that an octopus, I'm a drummer for a living <laughs> and this octopus had my arm and had full control. Yeah. And yeah. I was just like, what is happening? I had. No clue oh, what yeah. was happening in that moment. They, it's amazing. They can lift. I mean, I've heard a- anywhere from 80 pounds per sucker, which I can't even imagine. But a good rule of thumb is about 100 pounds per arm. So they got eight of them. Yeah. They are really, really strong. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I I have always thought they were amazing. But meeting one, it's like now I'm just like an, uh, an octopus evangelist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. Do you, Have you read uh, Soul of an Octopus, yes. Cy Montgomery? Yes. And I, I watched the Netflix series, the My Octopus Teacher mm, or whatever. Yeah. And that was the thing, too, where... Spoiler alert! Um, as was mentioned, they breed once and then they they die. You mm-hmm. know, after giving birth, I was super enjoying um, the show, and then they were like, "And now she is pregnant." I was like, "No!" I just immediately started crying. Oh, yeah. I was like, "Oh, it was rip bad. your heart out it of was your chest." So bad. I was so unhappy about. You were that not flight. alone in that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, but they are amazing creatures. Absolutely. Um, was there anything else that you wanted to hit on before we get to the, the last two questions? I mean, I can, I can talk all day. <laughs> I believe that, yeah. <laughs> About our animals, but, um, but no, no, go for it. All right. So then are there any conservation organizations you'd like to give a shout out to? I would. So, and, and they are, they are close by, they're here and it's Sustainable Tulsa and they are an amazing organization. It was started by one woman, Corey Williams. And it has expanded and expanded. And now there are so many partners in this organization and they have what's called their scorecard program. And so it's a way to quantify um, your sustainability. Nice. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a way for you as, as a consumer can know how sustainable is this, is this organization. And we're gold, by the way. I'm just going <laughs> to throw that out there. Just going to throw that out there. But, With my um, little certified compostable cup <laughs> that you gave me for my water. I believe it. Yeah. I, we do our best. <laughs> but yeah, Sustainable Tulsa all the way. I, I, yeah, I love them. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to 
go, you're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossipari poop story. Hit me. Okay. So it's not quite a poop story. Poop story. But it is one of the grossest things I have ever experienced in my life. And I've been around dead marine mammals and unfortunately dead sea turtles. And that's really gross. And this this takes the cake. And it was actually fairly recently. So uh, one of our turtles, Spot, we were treating him for an eye infection because his eye was kind of swollen. And so our vet came out and, and looked him over and we were, we were treating for that, but it wasn't, the swelling wasn't going down. And so our vet came out and they were kind of just probing around the eye and they felt something hard behind the eyeball. So at this point, the vet's finger is in his eye socket behind his eyeball. What? Yeah. Yeah. And there's this pocket back there. Well, turtles, sea turtles have salt glands so that they can excrete that that salt from the salt water. And so she's trying to pull this thing out because she knows there's not supposed to be this hard thing behind his eye. And it's, it's not coming, and it's not coming. And then it was like a baby being born. Oh, <laughs> oh no. She pulls out this crystallized salt lick that was like three inches long. So, of course, we're calling turtle vets all over the place. And they're like, yeah, we've seen them before. But not like that. Oh, my god! Yeah. So he, I am happy to report, is doing fantastic Uh now. His eye looks beautiful. And he's like, oh, that feels so much better. So, yeah. Yeah, that was, oh, yeah, that was was a gross one. Oh, that is so gross. Yeah. The plus side was then the cafe didn't have to buy salt for the next. No, I can't. I can't. I can't. No. No. Just for that, I'm going to show you the video. It's going to give you nightmares. Oh, gosh. Oh, my fiance is a vet. I I, I see it all. How funny. How funny. All right. Cool. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. This was amazing. My pleasure. Thank you for coming. Okay, so like I mentioned at the top of this episode, after that incredible interview, I asked Dr. Money if we could hang out for a bit, go see the aquarium, maybe, oh, I don't know, go meet Seymour and his brother, you know, go see Spot and not Spot, see the turtle who has been the background of my phone for many, many years. And she said yes. Of course she did, because otherwise this would be a weird thing to put on the podcast. She said no and kicked me out of the aquarium. I was sad. But uh, that's not that's not what happened. I am such a dork. But what happened was that uh, we went through the whole aquarium and we hung out together and she told me all about the place and it was super cool. And I got to meet a turtle who has brought me joy every single day for the last couple of years when I see that picture. It was truly fantastic. It meant the world to me. We also went and spent some time at the top of the bull shark tank and we're talking all about all kinds of interesting stuff. You know, not for the pod, just for life. But uh, I got to tell y'all, if you ever want to have a deep conversation with somebody, 
I highly recommend going to the top of a large aquarium and staring down at sharks while doing it because uh, it makes for a really, really lovely and and deep uh, experience. Maybe it's because of the depth of the water. I don't know. But uh, it was it was very cool. Um, but, you know, I don't know. There aren't a whole lot of animals that I have ever met who who I felt closer to before meeting them already than than Seymour. And that was that was just really special. Um, I was going to take some audio, but, you know, they're turtles. It was there wasn't it. It would have just been OK. I shall now recreate for you the experience of me meeting Seymour. It sounded like this. Hi, buddy. Oh my god. Hello. Oh, oh, you're swimming so good. Oh my oh my oh you are really gorgeous. Wow. Oh my Yeah, that was it for like way too long. Um Seymour weirdly did not respond uh vocally, seeing as how, you know, sea turtle. But um didn't swim away, didn't even look at me weird. I'm going to take that as a win, y'all. I'm going to take that as a win. Also, I have one more kind of fun story from my day at the aquarium that I wanted to share with y'all, which is that uh, when I reached out to the Oklahoma Aquarium and I started speaking to their PR person, uh, you know, her name is Lolly. You heard her mentioned in the episode. And uh, I was mentioning that, you know, I'm a touring musician coming through town on my way to a gig. And she asked what show I was off to do. So I explained that it's rockabilly music, million dollar quartet, Johnny Cash, Carl Perkins, all those guys. And uh, it turns out that she is a pinup model and huge rockabilly fan. And look, I'm not saying that rockabilly music is what got me an interview at a aquarium in the middle of, you know, a landlocked state in the middle of the country. But I'm saying that it didn't hurt. And I just really love all of those small world moments. So, like, I just thought that was just so much fun when she was like, ah, I'm in that world, too. I was like, what? What are the odds that we are both in both of these worlds? And please, can I interview someone at your facility? And the answer was obviously yes. So thank you, Lolly. Thank you, Dr. Money. It was such a special day. I loved spending the time that I got to with you both. And um, also the Indian food that was recommended to me that I ate afterwards. Because if you listen to the road trip episode, you know that's kind of my jam. So, uh, yeah, it was a good, good time. Now, if you would like to go and check out the Oklahoma Aquarium, you can do so by visiting Jenks, Oklahoma, obviously. And also by going to at OK Aquarium on Instagram and Facebook or by visiting OKAquarium.org. And hey, special thanks to my Red Panda level patron, Laura Shank. You too can become a patron, Red Panda level or lower if you'd like. That's cool too by visiting Patreon.com slash Safari. Now remember, friends, the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. 
You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.